This program is supported by Amgen. Amgen strives to serve patients by transforming the promise of science and biotechnology into therapies for patients with serious illnesses. Learn more at Amgen.com. From Susan G. Komen, this is Real Pink, a podcast exploring real stories, struggles, and triumphs related to breast cancer. We're taking the conversation from the doctor's office to your living room. Breast cancer can be overwhelming, and you may face many physical and emotional struggles, both during your treatment and in the months and years after. It's hard to know what to expect, as many survivors will tell you. There is no normal when it comes to cancer. Figuring out life after treatment can be hard. Feeling like yourself in your own skin can be hard. Relationships might feel different, and your view of life may even shift. Today's guest was living a life of service and was volunteering in Rwanda when she learned she likely had breast cancer at the age of 25. She immediately returned to the US where tests confirmed a diagnosis of stage two triple negative breast cancer. Here today to share her story and the impact that breast cancer had on her life and her well-being is Robin Siegel. Robin, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm very excited to hear your story. It sounds very unique. I understand, uh, like I mentioned in the intro, that you were diagnosed in a, a pre, pretty unique way. So tell us about where you were and what that experience was like. Yeah. So I would say this is the most unique part of my story. Um, I was living in Rwanda at the time. Um, I was volunteering at a youth village out there. And about six months uh, into my time in Rwanda, I felt a lump. Um, and I kind of just waited a month and was kind of playing it by ear, seeing if it would go away. I didn't think a whole lot into it. Um, but after a month went by, I, I decided I should probably get it checked out. Um, my maternal grandmother did have breast cancer. Um, she's the only one in the family, but it was something I had in my mind. Mm -hmm. So luckily I had some connections in Rwanda who were able to help me navigate the healthcare system there. And I showed up at a diagnostic clinic and asked for an ultrasound. Um, you know, one thing led to another. I had a biopsy in Rwanda and they couldn't formally diagnose me. So they kept saying it was suggestive of breast cancer, but um, it was inconclusive. So at that point, I knew I was going to have to leave. They still sent away an additional sample for additional testing. Um, but again, it was inconclusive, suggestive of breast cancer. So I kind of left Rwanda with this, I think I have breast cancer type of situation, um, which is a very strange place to be. Um, and yeah, I was, you know, working at a youth village out there. So while many would think that would be a very shocking diagnosis and I would have a lot of feelings about it, I was in logistics mode. I had not a lot of time to figure out who was going to take over my responsibilities. How was I going to tell all of the kids that I was working with, all of the teens that I was working with and not further traumatize them because they all came from very vulnerable um, backgrounds with a lot of traumatic experiences in their past. So how do I go about doing that? So I really wasn't thinking about myself for that period of time. I was really focused on them. Um, and it wasn't until I got home that I started figuring out my own life and, and what that would look like for me. Wow. I mean, that is, I, I can't even, I mean, I, I can only imagine that knowing you likely have it is pretty, pretty shattering. I guess maybe that's the best way to put it. But knowing that while you're 
out of the country and trying to figure out logistics for everyone else is wow that's that's profound so so you get back to the states and what happened next you started treatment or, or what happened yeah so um i went back to live with my mom and while i was sort of figuring out things in rwanda my mom had been trying to get me an appointment um with a breast cancer specialist near her so kind of twofold attack um so by the time i got home i think i got home on a monday maybe my first appointment was on a thursday mm. and basically i had an initial consultation and I brought them all of my documentation from Rwanda, the scans, the biopsy, inconclusive results and everything. Um, and they basically said, listen, we're going to have to go through the diagnostic process all over again. This isn't good enough. We need to figure out what's going on. So that led me to another biopsy, um, another lymph node biopsy, which I actually didn't have the first time. Um, but they were able to formally diagnose me the day after my biopsy. Whereas in Rwanda, um, initially, they told me it would have taken over a month to diagnose me or to give me the results of the biopsy. Mm, um, yeah. And with some finagling, we got it down to about a week and a half. Um, but yeah, so the difference in the diagnostic process was something that really stood out to me um, as well um, from a public health perspective. Wow. So what were your emotions when you finally got back and what were the emotions of your family like and, and just kind of what was it like sort of dealing with all of this at once? I think my family had a lot of the same reactions as I did in terms of just trying to figure out logistics because they needed to help me from their side of things um, to just get things going, figure out next steps. Um, I think that there was a bit of relief on all sides when we actually had a formal diagnosis um, because that at least gave us some answers. And at that point, I first felt the lump the end of April and I wasn't formally diagnosed until mid-July. So it was quite a bit of time of uncertainty and wondering and um, that, that can be kind of the most difficult part, I think. Yeah, yeah I mean, not knowing is, is really so so difficult i can i've had a lot of people have talked about that on the show so so you you went from rwanda volunteering to help youth to back to the states figuring out your health uh your life changed significantly before and, and presumably after breast cancer tell us about what that was like for you yeah i mean i had spent the few, I don't know, five or so years prior, um, traveling, living abroad, whether it be studying or, or doing service programs. Um, and so I was, I was really living this life of, um, sort of a free spirit. Um, and I was kind of forced to go home, uh, live at home. I wasn't able to really progress in my career in any way or do anything meaningful when it came to service, because I really did have to focus on myself, which did not come naturally to me. Um, I prefer focusing on other people. <laughs> so it was a lesson in being humble and accepting help. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful that I have a great support system, family and friends in the area um, who were able to help me through. But yeah, I mean, I was home for about 10 months and it was really challenging to focus on myself and to not be able to progress in my career when everyone around me was, uh, you know, friends were progressing in their careers, they were getting engaged, they were getting married, some were having kids. And I was, you know, 25, 20, turned 26 years old and I was stuck at home and I was going through cancer treatment and I was 
just stagnant and had no idea what the future would hold. So I, mm. I kind of had to put my life on hold and felt like I was in limbo for, you know, the whole period of treatment. And, and I mean, that's just got to be such a struggle uh, for you that just that profound shift in, in lifestyle and in trajectory and everything else. And so I'm, I'm curious, I mean, did you struggle more during treatment or was it more difficult after treatment was done and sort of figuring out what's next? So that part's really interesting because during treatment, the treatment itself, I feel, I felt like I handled pretty well. Um, I didn't realize it at the time I was in survival mode. I'm very much a, um, logical person. And so I knew that I had very little control over the situation. Whatever the doctors told me to do, I had to do, you know, I had no control over whether the chemo worked and the medications worked. And, you know, I could only sort of try to focus on my mental health and my physical health and in terms of diet and exercise, but I didn't have a whole lot of control. So I really just kind of went with the flow. Um, and the hardest part was that sort of struggle of where my life was at. Um, aside from cancer, just having to be stagnant and feeling like I just wanted to, you know, jump on a plane and go somewhere or go back to Rwanda, which was really hard for me. Um, but actually after treatment, you know, I expected my life to go back to normal, whatever that meant. I truly went into cancer treatment thinking that it was all temporary. It was stage two. I would have my treatment. The treatment would work at the end of treatment. I would be fine and I would get on a plane and go back to Rwanda or wherever I, you know, chose to be. Sure. Um, that is not at all how it played, <laughs> played mm. out. Um, I mean, I'm lucky in that my treatment did work and, you know, I was able to move forward after about 10 months, but I didn't quite realize the emotional aspects of it where I would fear recurrence, which I, I didn't expect to. Um, I knew I would have scans every six months, which kind of made it challenging to um, be able to live abroad where I couldn't afford to go back to the U.S. for scans every six months. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, if I had a recurrence, you know, being abroad, I've already experienced that once. Um, I wasn't really keen on experiencing a diagnostic process in a you know, foreign country again. <laughs> and then again, when you get back to the States, right? You, right, no, exactly. Right. So all these yeah. things kind of played a role. Um, and so I kind of felt like I was forced into staying in the U.S., mm. which wasn't a bad thing necessarily. It just wasn't quite what I had in mind for myself. Mm. The, you know, I came from a public health international development um, field, and a lot of the work in the U.S. is headquarters based and it's office based. And I was more hands on the ground. I didn't care if I made money as long as I felt like I was having an impact and being able to serve other people. That was really fulfilling for me. So it was a really big mindset shift for me. Mm. Um, and I struggled, I struggled significantly more in those uh, first few years after treatment. So, so how did you work through that? I mean, how did you cope with that, uh, profound shift in sort of your expectations and trajectory? I feel like in the beginning, I didn't cope very well. <laughs> um, I didn't quite have a grasp on what was happening because I was just focused on the next step and figuring out, just getting back to normal, starting a new job. I moved from Florida to Washington, D.C. Um, and, you know, started a new job and was figuring out all these pieces. At, mm -hmm. All the while, my mental health started to um, take a toll. 
um, you know, the sort of aspects of life of readjusting to normal life. How do I relate to my peers when I had just gone through this experience? How do I start this new career um, while I'm still kind of playing catch up from cancer and the toll that it took on my body and my, my health? Um, and so in the beginning, I really, I didn't realize how much I was struggling. I was just pushing through. Um, and then things started to kind of get a little worse and get a little worse until I got to a point where I was forced to say to myself, you know, something's not right. Mm. Um, and so it took a while. It wasn't because I'd never struggled with my mental health before. Right. So it took me a while to recognize the signs in myself and say, something's not right. I think I need to see a therapist. I think I need to get some outside support. Um, so that was a whole process in and of itself where I um, ended up seeking um, a therapist for mm. um, support and that helped a good amount, um, but it wasn't everything for me. Um, so, you know, I had a handful of months, maybe six, or so, six to eight months, where I was um, doing talk therapy, which would help, but not to the extent that I needed it to. So I still considered that period of time somewhat untreated depression, um, which I didn't realize at the time. I wish I would have started um, antidepressant therapy sooner. Um, and it wasn't that I was against it. I just didn't realize that I needed it. I didn't quite understand. I thought, you know, I'm just figuring out the pieces and I'm you know, seeking, you know, I'm, I'm talking to my therapist and I'm working through things and it just takes a long time. But it got to the point where I wasn't progressing the way I felt like I needed to. I wasn't coping with everyday life the way I felt like was, I don't know, making progress. Um, I was really struggling day to day. And I talked with my therapist and, and, you know, my team of doctors and, you know, we decided the next step is, is to start medication, which really is where I started turning a corner. I'm very glad that you got the help that you needed. And then when, when the help you were receiving wasn't the right help, you got even more the help you needed. That's, mm -hmm. that's so important. And being able to advocate for yourself in that way is just so critical. So I understand that you're the first person I've interviewed in two categories. I think you're the first person I've interviewed that had sort of an initial quad an initial quasi-diagnosis out of the country. And I think you're also the first person I've interviewed that started a relationship during treatment. Is that correct? And yes. if that's true, I would like to know more about that. What was that like? Yeah, that was, that was pretty wild and very unexpected. Um, I met my now husband um, two weeks after my first chemo treatment. So... It was very early on in my cancer experience and my hair was falling out on our first date. Um, <laughs> and he was just a trooper. He handled it very well. Um, two days after our first date is when I shaved my head. And, you know, in the beginning, I thought, I don't know if this is a good idea. Like, I don't know what to expect with cancer, yet alone, like navigating a new relationship and you know, it's very complicated and very vulnerable. Mm. Um, but I think the way that he handled my hair falling out on the first date and me shaving my head two days later, um, and just how open and supportive he was in the very beginning, knowing that I had cancer from the moment we met, um, it made it easy to trust him and just to say, you know what, why not? You know, we'll check in with each other along the way. You know, I made sure to try and find the right balance of how much I'm you know, relying on him as a support versus 
just letting it be a new relationship. Mm. So we kind of find that balance. Um, and I always checked in and said, is this too much for you? You know, just want to make sure, you know, if you need to take some time or, or step away, like, you know, I, I would totally understand, but he was in it, you know, he never hesitated and, you know, was just there, you know, to whatever extent I needed him. And, you know, his viewpoint on it is he was my, ex- my escape from cancer, um, which was really nice. So, you know, when I was with him, sure, I had all my side effects and I was still, you know, dealing with a variety of things, but we would set up our hammocks in the park and read, we would go kayaking or camping or, um, you know, just live normal life, which yeah. was, you know, wonderful. And I think really good for my mental health along the way and physical health, probably. Mm, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. It sounds amazing. And so I also understand that you're currently trying to start a family. Uh, tell me about that and how your breast cancer experience has affected that journey. Yeah, that's been um, very interesting. So in the very beginning, you know, before treatment, I was given the option of um, doing egg preservation. and because I had already, you know, it was April, end of April when I found the lump and I didn't even um, get my diagnosis till mid-July. By the time I had even like considered that and we had been in the talks, it was already August. I was too nervous to delay treatment, even if it was just a couple of weeks, because I had already been sitting with cancer that I knew of mm. since April. And I just was very nervous about any consequences that would come of that. So I chose, and the funny thing is at that point, I was like, oh, I'm single and I'm not a hundred percent if I want kids. So I'd rather not risk my life for it. Right. <laughs> uh, two right. weeks later, I meet my husband, <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, so I, I chose not to preserve my eggs um, before treatment. So I knew that my fertility may be affected by treatment and he knew as well. So once we got married and decided to start thinking about, you know, starting a family, we knew I may be at a disadvantage to begin with. So we immediately just went to the doctor to get sort of baseline testing to see where I was at. Um, And that baseline testing immediately referred us to a fertility clinic because essentially um, the cancer treatment that I had aged me reproductively. Mm -hmm. So I was 30 when we started testing and they said reproductively, I was about that of a 38 to 40 year old. So, you know, still possible, still absolutely possible to get pregnant and and have a family, but given, you know, my situation and and some other factors, you know, we did seek the the help of a fertility specialist and and they sort of recommended going straight into IVF, um, basically giving us the best option of um, being able to have a biological family. And in addition, if we want more than one biological child, it, it, it sort of gives us time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we weighed our options and, and decided to do that. So we actually did four rounds of IVF, um, and kind of on the front end decided to get as many embryos as we could, um, and then kind of go from there. So we had one failed embryo transfer, um, sort of after all of those retrievals, when we actually started trying, um, in that respect, um, took some time off and I'm actually pregnant now. Um, I'm actually, yeah, 15 weeks pregnant, um, and not through IVF, which is sometimes happens and I'll take it as a win. (laughs) Um, Wow. That is really exciting. 
Yeah, it's been it's been wild. So we're really excited about it. Um, and you know, IVF is great. We still have you know our embryos left, the ones that we didn't use, and that'll be great if we decide we want to have a, a second or a third biological child at any point in our life. So, um, yeah, life has a, a funny way of playing out, and you can never predict anything. But we'll take the win. <laughs> Life does have a funny way of playing out, but I, I would venture to say that some of your twists and turns are very, very unexpected. So, yes. uh, so, so, wow, Robin, I mean, your story is amazing. Your outlook is, is just amazing. Um, last question, what advice do you have for our listeners that might be afraid of unknowns or struggling with many of the same things that you've struggled with? You know, in the beginning when I was first diagnosed, it was really hard for me feeling um, isolated and alone. I was 25 and there's not many 25 year olds diagnosed with breast cancer. And so when I would try and find other people's stories to see, kind of learn what to expect, I didn't have friends or family who I could turn to who had experience with it. So I turned to the internet. Um, and I, you know, I found a handful of, of blogs and of you know, people's stories that kind of resonated with me that were, you know, people on the younger side of things. Um, and that really helped me to just get a feel for what to expect in the coming months, um, how other people handled it, or, you know, just some of the unexpected. I knew my story wouldn't necessarily be what their story was, but it really helped me feel less alone. Um, and that was sort of how I came, you know, five years later now, um, part of my journey, I've actually decided to share my story as part of that because I know how important that was for me in the beginning. So, you know, I recently started a blog so that, you know, it was therapeutic for me as well, being able to kind of relive it and, and work through my emotions and sort of write all of these crazy experiences that I've had. Um, but also in, in hopes that whether it be from a um, practical breast cancer experience or a mental health side of things, um, or just sort of living life side of things, you know, any way I could help someone else is, um, sort of something that has been very meaningful for me taking yeah. experience. So I would say, you know, find resources, whatever it may be, a blog, family and friends for support, social, you know, supports in any way, um, kind of be self-aware as much as you can and honest with yourself. If you need to seek help, if you need a therapist, if you think you need to be, um, you know, on antidepressants or anything, you know, be open to whatever may support groups, whatever may be able to support you along the way. There's no right or wrong way to handle breast cancer. Um, mm. but there's plenty of support out there. And the more you are seeking those resources, hopefully the easier it'll be for anyone. Well, Robin, that is Fantastic advice. I, I could not possibly add anything to it. It was just fantastic. Thank you for taking the time to share your story with us today. And thank you for just joining us on the show. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This program is supported by Amgen. Amgen strives to serve patients by transforming the promise of science and biotechnology into therapies for patients with serious illnesses. Learn more at amgen.com. Thanks for listening to Real Pink, a weekly podcast by Susan G. Komen. For more episodes, visit realpink.komen.org. And for more on breast cancer, visit komen.org. Make sure to check out at Susan G. Komen on social media. I'm your host, Adam. You can find me on Twitter at AJ Walker or on my blog, adamjwalker.com.